Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We've done over a thousand programs since the pandemic began, and uh, we now have our live audiences back, which we're very happy to see. And we also uh, welcome everybody on YouTube and our live stream to watch. Uh, this is going to be the fifth program the Commonwealth Club has done with Mark Shaw. Um, it's been seven years uh, since the first one that we did, and um, the last two have been YouTube sensations, um, over a million each. And uh, we're here to discuss uh, today the 60th anniversary of JFK's uh, assassination and also the new research that has come out uh, very recently uh, in Mark's thing. Now, as I mentioned in the last one, uh, Mark has become sort of a crowdsourcing um, basis for all kinds of research. People give him information that they have. Not all of it is useful, um, but some of it is extremely useful. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking about one of those new useful sources. We mentioned him last time briefly, but there's more, much more information since then. So we're here to discuss something very important uh, and very dear to Mark's heart, of course, um, and that is JFK's life and what happened to him and also the fact that he, he just did not get justice in, in the crime that was taken against him. I mean, the, the assassination, he just did not get what almost a normal person would. He was president of the United States. A normal person would have gotten a better um, look into what had happened than that. So, Mark, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, George. Thank you. All right. So, uh, one thing that maybe we can do to set it up, since we're talking about 60 years ago, and uh, and everybody that watches it is not a baby boomer. You know, maybe maybe half the people are, but a lot of people aren't quite aware of what the whole cultural uh, context was for his presidency and what was going on at the time. So why don't you give a little bit of background information on that, just brief ideas. Well, I'm, I'm kind of an accidental historian. I had never imagined that I would get involved in all of this. Uh, everybody knows where they were when JFK died, and so do I. Uh, I was a freshman at Purdue University trying to struggle through to graduate. I think that was my uh, fifth year there or something like that. But I remember that, but I was never interested in it much. And when the Warren Commission said it was Oswald alone, I was just fine with that. Mm. But you have to remember that in the 1970s, a very violent 1970s, I wrote down, George, just a few things that we can remember from those days. Of course, John Kennedy elected president. We had the Cuban middle, Missile Crisis. The Berlin Wall was erected. Uh, James Meredith registered at the University of Mississippi. There was civil unrest, if you remember, and all of the riots. Uh, Obviously, JFK was assassinated and Lyndon Johnson became president. The Civil Rights Act had been then passed. The first spacewalks, Malcolm X died, Martin Luther King was killed, and even Bobby Kennedy then was killed in 1968. So, uh, and Marilyn Monroe uh, died, and I believe was, as I've said in my presentations and in my books, I believe she was murdered in 1962. So it was kind of dark days in those, uh, in those few years uh, from probably 19... Uh, 61 or 2 until 68 or 69. And so that's the context then of what JFK and his assassination, uh, where, that, where that fit in with all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, in your books, you talk a lot about JFK and, and the Kennedy family, uh, the difficulties they have, the, the sort of family culture that doesn't work. But today we're going to focus on the, the promise that he gave to people, the, the feeling of hope, the in fact, in his, in his inauguration speech, he, he reached out to people to, to do something um, and that that was a very effective thing to do. And I, I think the audience today should have a, an understanding of it in that he was the first person, not of post-World War II generation because he was heavily involved in World War II himself, but he was much, much younger than the leaders from before. And we happen to have even older leaders now and, and uh, there is a, a, a spirit of hope when the generation passes mm -hmm. to another set of leaders who, who, who aren't, well, we won't say how old, but. Yeah, yeah. So, so why don't you talk about that, that part of uh, the effect on the youth and, and even young adults and even middle-aged adults of, of, of what he did? 
Well, he was an inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about a lot of the, the warts, a lot of the negatives about John F. Kennedy. But uh, when, when he was elected president, even when he was a senator, you know, and with Jackie and Camelot and all of that, there was hope that uh, he, he was going to make a change in America from what it had been. Uh, he was a war hero, mm-hmm. you know, PT-109, all of that, injured. Uh, you know, you, you looked at him, there's nobody who was ever more charismatic than John F. Kennedy. Uh, I was a little embarrassed that they put my photo uh, up next to his, because, uh, you know, I'm no John F. Kennedy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think we all felt that there was a lot of hope there. And he married Jackie, and they had the two little kids. And, you know, you have to remember with these deaths, that even when I, that I talked about the other ones, uh, there's a sense of loss there for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, he, what that particular person lost with JFK, never playing with the little kids, you know, John, John, and and uh, his daughter, and, and uh, all of the things that he could have done as president. I mean, he, they, we hoped that he would get us out of Vietnam. He and Bobby Kennedy, in one of their greatest uh, efforts uh, while they were both alive, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that. And then, the, you know, he lost, he lost all of that in, in his life at a very early age, you know, in his 40s. It shouldn't have happened. It should have never happened. In fact, I'm going to talk about this one gentleman that I've mentioned before in, in Fighting for Justice uh, that uh, had warnings about the fact that that could happen to JFK if he went to Dallas. Mm-hmm. So it's a tragic death, and his family lost him, but we lost a president that had a lot, whether you agreed with him or not, we had a lot of hope with him. And that's what a leader, I think you would call him a leader for sure of, mm-hmm. of the country. People believed in him. And so it's just tragic. And then more tragic to me is that just as when uh, Marilyn Monroe died, I believe she was murdered, and Dorothy Kilgallen, who we'll talk about, uh, my spiritual guide, uh, died, uh, none of these three uh, got the justice they deserved with an investigation. And that that shouldn't have happened to any of them. It's sad that it did. But with JFK especially, boy, from the moment he he was killed in Dallas. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and, and the people that we talk about on the Warren Commission, uh, they were never going to let the truth uh, survive, that's for sure. All right, so let's talk about the new information that you've gotten about uh, the dissenting members of the Warren Commission because it's not, it's not known, I mean, it's, it's not secret information, but it's just not known that they were so strong in their dissent and what the deal was that they thought that they had made which didn't take place. So why don't we look at that? So you met and have talked to Morris Wolf. So why don't you tell people about who Morris Wolf is? Morris Wolf is still alive, yeah. um, but he's almost 90 years old, right? Yeah, he's a yeah. bit of ill health. It's been amazing for me, and I'm a little bit remiss because I've written six books about the JFK assassination. At one point, I put them all in one file. I've written almost 950,000 words about this. I never had any, any idea. I started with this book, Melvin Belli, King of the Courtroom. I practiced law with Mr. Belli in the 1980s. When he died, I was very interested in, he was a quite a bambest, uh, bambastic guy, uh, you know, a bambastic guy who uh, was bigger than life. Uh, people remember him for a lot of things. He represented, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones and Tammy, May, Tammy Faye Baker, uh, uh, Errol Flynn, he sued all the pharmaceutical people and everything else. But I learned through my working on this book that he was the uh, attorney for Jack Ruby. I never knew that before. It took me back to the 1960 election show. I wrote the Poison Patriarch about Joe Kennedy fixing the 1960 election using the mafioso, uh, specifically a Giancana and a guy named Mar- Marcello in New Orleans, to win that election because they were going to lose Illinois and West Virginia. And... and- that's more or less accepted as historical fact. Yes, it at is. This point. Yes, it I mean, is. By, yes, by it most is. people. Not everybody, of course. So while I was, you know, what happens with, I think, a researcher like me, there are certain moments when you hear something that triggers in your mind some way to go forward in another direction. While I was working on the Melvin Belli book, uh, a friend of his who I interviewed said, well, you know, Melvin Belli knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I said, well, what? She, he was on What's My Line, which was the... CBS television show she was most known for that we'll talk about a bit. And he said, no. He said, you know, he, he was a f- really a good friend of hers. And when, when uh, 
when uh, she died, uh, he, he said to me, well, they've killed Dorothy, now they'll go after Jack Ruby. And I thought, wait a minute, what's that all about? So I started looking into Dorothy Kilgallen, and I wrote The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, which has become a bestseller. George knows I've had millions of YouTube views of my presentations and everything. It's all about Dorothy Kilgallen. It's not about me, because mm -hmm. they are so fascinated with her life. So I wrote that book. Then I found out about the Warren Commission test, uh, transcripts and Dorothy Kilgallen's uh, interest in all of that, and I wrote Denial of Justice. Then I decided, okay, uh, I told my wife I'm going to quit, but then I found out that I could connect the deaths of Marilyn Monroe in 62, JFK in 63, and Dorothy in 65, okay? And that's what collateral damage did. I, I went back about the five programs, and when we did the Denial of Justice book, we said, in the final chapter of Mark Shaw's reporting, that's the way we described it. Absolutely. Totally inaccurate. But when you, <laughs> when you get this information, you know, you feel a responsibility as a historian. George is a historian. He knows what that's all about. And I'm so pleased that he's invited me to, to, to come speak here. So then I was going to stop again. But then I ran into this man, Morris Wolf. Not figuratively, but I ran into him, or literally, whichever it is. Uh, and and, and here, here's what happens. Um, people watch my uh, YouTube views uh, of my presentations, mostly here at the Commonwealth Club or at the Allen Public Library, which is near Dallas. And what they do is they go in there, they watch these, and then they get in touch with me. And I get emails or I get phone calls or something. Here's a tip. Here's a tip. Here's a tip. This will happen with this presentation when it's up on YouTube. I'll find out something. So it's kind of amazing because I've kind of become the, you know, the go-to guy when there's new information out there. And I'm always amazed, frankly, that others didn't find that information. And the information that, that you're going to hear about tonight that has never been heard before uh, in, in any uh, venue at all is, is a good example of that because even I missed it and I even made a mistake uh, in Fighting for Justice, which is the latest book uh, that I, I will correct with the, with the paperback, because the new information came to me. And here's who Morris Wolf was, or is. Uh, one afternoon, Lou knows my wife, I got this uh, email, said, I am Morris Wolf. Uh, I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I just watched your presentation at the Dallas Public Library. Uh, it went viral, and so he saw it, and he said, I, I, I saw you did something on Dorothy Kilgallen. So I always follow up on these. I answer every email because I never know what's going to happen. And I, I called this gentleman. He lives in Florida, and he said, well, yes, Mr. Shaw, I wanted to get in touch with you because I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And when that happens, my ears perk up because that's a long time ago, right? All right? Long time ago, 60, 60 years, Okay. And he said, okay, uh, I just want to tell you a few things about myself. He said, first of all, just to give you some idea of who I am, uh, I, uh, I was a graduate of Yale. I uh, went to work for uh, Bobby Kennedy in the White House when he was the Attorney General. I, uh, I was uh, with the Attorney General when we worked on the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. I r actually wrote Title II of that Civil Rights Act. We used the Commerce Clause. I mean, give me all these details uh, to hopefully do away with segregation and so on and so forth. He said, and also, Mr. Shaw, I should tell you that I was trusted enough by Robert Kennedy and JFK to be their go-between riding my bicycle. I just imagine I'm sitting there. I can't record this, so I'm just riding as quickly as I can mm -hmm. because this is history. No. This is history. He was about a 25 to 27-year-old new law graduate. That's right. And, That's and, right. and he's... Riding a bicycle back and forth between the brothers um, because? Because they suspect, they, he took messages back and forth, secret messages, because they believe, knew that J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, was tapping their phones. Now just think about that for a minute, that that was happening in our country. That the FBI director couldn't be trusted not to tap the phones of the president and the attorney general. And so Morris then went on to tell me about his, his work with RFK and down to the details. I interviewed him once last year and just again in September. He's very, very bright, very coherent, and, and he, he, he's so good with details. For instance, he would tell me 
um, you know, when he went into Bobby Kennedy's office, there he was with his sleeves of his shirt rolled up, no jacket on, his tie back, and how he just sat back in his chair, you know, and how his, his, uh, his uh, chin would kind of move around a little bit when he was real nervous. I mean, he, he could give me all of those details, and that's important to a historian, mm-hmm. that the person is giving you a good account of what that's all about. So he said, well, I kept working for Robert Kennedy, and I, uh, he said, oh, oh, one thing I want to remember, he said, you know, there's a, quite a rivalry between the two brothers, mm-hmm. uh, especially JFK thought Bobby Kennedy was getting way too much publicity. And so they argued about those kinds of things, you know, and that's, that's the inside. You know, Dorothy Kilgallen was at Dil- at da- in Dallas when the JFK, uh, you know, after the JFK, JFK got killed and she investigated. Um, you know, my, my primary sources with that kind of thing really work well that way because I wasn't there, but she was. Well, now I've got Morris Wolf, who was there, and all these great experts and authors and everything who speculate and everything. I don't have to do that because I have my primary sources, and I think people admire me for that. I'm not going to trick them with what I'm going to find out secondhand. Right, and Morris Wolf, in addition to knowing both Kennedys, I mean, and knowing them so well that he was their go-between, He then was the legislative assistant to Senator John Sherman Cooper, who was a Republican from Kentucky, who was on the Warren Commission. That's right. And before that, Morris then one day told me that he had had represented Raoul Wallenberg. And I don't know if you know who that is, but he's the Hungarian Jew who saved, they believe, more than 100,000 Jewish people during the Holocaust. And he wrote this book about it. So I'm just just thinking, my gosh, this is amazing that I have this gentleman... Uh, that is, is right in the thick of everything. So he was leaving Bobby Kennedy, and, and he, Kennedy said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, Senator John Sherman Cooper, who's a good friend of ours, the Kennedys, and I have photographs of, of, uh, of uh, John Sherman Cooper with, and his wife with JFK and Jackie, uh, all of the uh, friendship that they had. Jackie Kennedy said that Cooper was a man of integrity like Abraham Lincoln, almost like a father to her, all of that. So I'm learning more about uh, John Sherman Cooper from, from Morris Wolf, And he said, you know, Bobby Kennedy said, uh, John Sherman Cooper needs a, a legislative assistant. Uh, his, his, the one that he had left, and he's about to uh, investigate the JFK assassination, and you would be perfect to work for him. So Morris says, uh, you know, Mr. Wolf says, I went to work for him. And I have to tell you that, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen when somebody's talking to you. Mm-hmm. And he's throwing out all this. And then he finally says to me, and I have to tell you, I'm remiss that I never looked uh, uh, into, uh, into it enough, the Warren Commission. Like everybody else that was befuddled by uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, you know, I just believe that that was what happened. Oswald alone made sense, all right? So I never investigated it, and I should have. And, and that's my fault. So he starts to tell me about the possibilities that are going on with uh, the Warren Commission. And if you have to remember, we do have to go back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. What did J. J. Edgar Hoover do, do when uh, JFK died, okay? The first thing he had to decide was, wait a minute, uh, are they going to hold me responsible that I didn't stop the, uh, the assassination of the president? So right away, he's in protect mode. And what does he do? He shouts out Oswald alone. He tells the Justice Department, we're only going to look at Oswald alone. We want to, remember this, we want to convince the American public that it was Oswald alone and nothing else. And, and to control that then, he, he does two things. Number one, he goes ahead and he confiscates all the Dallas Police Department uh, documents having to do with the JFK death. And two, he quickly, without any authority whatsoever, ships JFK's body off to Washington, D.C. for the autopsy because he says, hey, uh, it, it, it's not a state crime to kill the president of the United States. That was the terrible lie. It was. And the Dallas, uh, the, uh, Dallas, uh, the uh, Texas attorney general was going to look into the case. And Congress was going to look into the case. Everybody wanted to look into the case. Well, he can't let that happen, can he? Because he's got a lot of skeletons in his closet as well in terms of what happened. So he decides, all right, well, what, what needs to be done here? Uh, let's, uh, let's get a group of people together. 
We'll have Earl Warren be the, uh, the head of it, the Warren Commission. And Earl Warren was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the time, which is an interesting thing because, you know, why would the Chief Justice ever be on a commission for anything? That's right, exactly. So then what does he do? He starts choosing people to be on there. The first one that, that hit me hard, uh, it, why, you know, the why, he appointed uh, Alan Dulles uh, to the commission. Well, Alan Dulles was the, the, uh, the CIA director that JFK had fired two years earlier. Why is he on the commission? Well, we'll talk about why. He's perfect. LBJ is there. Well, LBJ is perfect because he's the new president and uh, he's going to go along with whatever Hoover wants to do for sure. He then picks Jerry Ford and his comment that I found in audio tapes, uh, they're on the internet, on, on YouTube, you can find them, uh, that, that they talk about the fact that they want Jerry Ford on there because it's the old cliche, he can't think and chew gum at the same time. That's why they want, he could be controlled, you see. Hoover wanted to control everything. He throws on there uh, then Senator Richard Russell, who is a Democrat from Georgia, and, and Senator John Sherman Cooper, who's from uh, Kentucky, as, as, uh, as um, uh, George said, believing that they will give authenticity to the commission, but that they can be controlled. Uh, he, he, he can't name uh, Kennedy to it, so he has uh, Katzenbach, who's the at acting attorney general, kind of be an unofficial advisor to the uh, commission, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why that happened exactly. So he's got his commission together, and then he starts in with them, basically uh, ordering them more than anything else, we're only going to investigate Oswald, okay? So I meet Morris Wolf, and what does he tell me? Well, he says, you know, Mark, and, and this is where it's so detailed, uh, we drove, he was a very tall man, but he could fit into my sob, and we drove to the commission hearings together. And I'll tell you what, I just wanted to scream. Nobody has ever gotten inside the Warren Commission. They had a code of silence that, uh, J, that uh, J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson made them sign that they would never talk about the Warren Commission. And it never was for all those years and all those years. And here's a guy saying, I was right there. I was at the hearings. I sat in the back row. I watched the staff do most of the interviewing of the witnesses. And why was that? Because, and not the members, because Hoover, again, could control the staff. All he wants is Oswald alone, because if the Oswald alone is, is fed to people and they, and they chew it in and they, and they take it in, then they're never going to investigate anything else, especially to hold him responsible. So Morris Wolf then says, well, we did that. And by the way, uh, there are a few things that uh, Senator Cooper told me, and I wrote these down as quickly as I could. <laughs> the commission members already know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. Jack Ruby, of course, shot Oswald. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone conclusion. You know, some of these are so disturbing. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, now wants to cover up and move on. The commission members want to bury the truth under a pile of stones, and Earl Warren is acting like a third-world dictator. LBJ, uh, Cooper told uh, Morris Wolf, put me on the commission because I am a distinguished senator, one respected by my colleagues. My appearance will give the impression the investigation will be beyond, be beyond reproach, but there's something very wrong with the investigation. The commission members say the Oswald conclusion is good for God and country, but there is internal corruption and I don't know why. Commission members are not conducting the hearing. Staffers are doing so. And this one was one that really hit me. To make sure the truth prevails, I have shared Jack Ruby's, Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission with journalist Dorothy Kilgallen, a woman of the truth. And during the photo of the commission members, that's it right there. Look, at the, look closely at it. During the photo of the commission members, I hid behind Senator Hale, Hale Boggs because I knew the final report was tr untrue. He is the second one from the right. Look at him. He's hiding behind Boggs. Look at, the, look at the look on his face. Okay? And recently, talk about crowdsourcing. I've looked at that 
darn, I guess I'll say, darn photograph 100,000 times, okay? And I never saw the look on Alan Dulles' face. Alan is standing right next to uh, yeah. Senator Cooper. He's looking at Cooper like, why, you know, what, are, what are you doing? Because he's gonna, he knows about Cooper wants a dissent, a minority report on the final report of the Warren Commission. And that's where we're going to get into the new evidence with that. So that's what, what uh, Morris told me. Morris told you. And he told you that about what Senator John Sherman Cooper told him. Exactly. So, so he had this role and he, was, he felt he was being used on the commission. So that's the evidence from Morris. Now we have other evidence that's come, right? Yeah, and I missed it. I missed all this. Uh, I looked at the oral history of, uh, of uh, Senator John Sherman Cooper at the University of Kentucky. He also did one at the University of Georgia. But some of that material that I, that I didn't find uh, w wasn't really my own fault because, uh, you know, I, I felt my research was good. But uh, the, real, the real gold was in Senator Richard Russell, his uh, oral history at the University of Georgia. So here's what happened. You know, it's amazing. Dorothy Kilgallen led me to Morris Wolf. Morris Wolf then led me to Senator Richard Russell. And what I found was that I'd made a mistake in fighting for justice because I thought that this memo right here was written by John Sherman Cooper. It was not. It was written by Senator Richard Russell. Now, if you want to talk just a little bit about a, a really respected man, as respected as John Sherman Cooper was, it has to be Richard Russell. Back in those days, God willing, we could ever find it again, they didn't, it didn't really matter if they were a Democrat or a Republican. They were really looking at what was good for America. And both of these two worked across the aisle. They, they took on unpopular causes and everything like that. For heaven's sakes, John Sherman Cooper got involved in the civil rights movement. Well, you can imagine that didn't go over too big in Kentucky, right? By a right? Republican. No, by a Republican. But see, they were after the truth. And Russell, again, a good friend of, 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 of uh, JFK's. And, and they were men of distinction. They were men of integrity, just like Dorothy Kilgallen was a woman of integrity. So here's the, this a memorandum. This is December the 5th, 1963. Just two weeks after the assassination. Exactly. So here's what Russell wrote. Something strange is happening. W, you can imagine who that is, Warren, and Katzenbach, who's the acting attorney general, know all about the FBI and they are, and they are apparently, and, and others, planning to show Oswald only one even considered. This is, in, to me, is an untenable position. I must, inside, it, it must insist on outside counsel. So right away, I knew that uh, Richard Russell uh, obviously uh, was having trouble with what was being investigated by the, by the, uh, by the commission, okay? And again, uh, I, I might add right now, I found, and I have it in uh, Fighting for Justice, a letter from Senator Cooper, asking to resign from the commission. And the reason he didn't, he didn't send it, but what it said in there was that he was so disappointed that they weren't telling him when certain witnesses, like Oswald's brother and others, were being interviewed by the commission so that he could be there. Just think about that. Now, that's J. Edgar Hoover manipulating the commission so that there's never anything that's going to be different than Oswald alone. Okay? So then we get to this document that I didn't know existed, and I found it in his um, oral history in, uh, in, 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 in uh, University of Georgia. Now, he's a senator from Kentucky, so, but he's, this oral history was in the University of Georgia. Yeah. Along with the records of Senator Richard Russell. That's right. Yeah. And these are very disturbing documents. They've never surfaced before. Just imagine that. In 60 years, I'm the one who found them? Come on. There's no question in my mind that they deep-sixed them. In fact, you're going to find out they actually destroyed documents. With these points behind, before him, what Russell believed, he forced a final executive session of the Warren Commission. His main agenda was to present his prepared dissent 
and to refuse to sign the commission report unless the dissent was included. After presenting his concern, Russell was joined by the dissent, in the dissent by Senator John Schumer Cooper and to a lesser extent, Representative Boggs, which I never knew about. In an oral history conducted late in his life, Cooper recalled that Russell's well-reasoned opinion had great influence on Cooper's own conclusions. Like Russell, Cooper was impressed by the strong and compelling testimony of Governor Connolly and thus willing to follow Russell's lead in rejecting the single bulk, bu bullet theory, which didn't make any sense back then and doesn't make any sense today. Cooper, it seems, was struck by Russell's emphatic refusal to sign the statement that categorically denied that one bullet had struck both Kennedy and Connolly. Although he did not go so far as to prepare a written dissent, Cooper was willing to join Russell in a minority report. It's interesting to me, too, because uh, the Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren was uh, in charge of the commission. He should be used to dissents in the Supreme Court, always puts their dissents in. So you have this evidence. This is by Senator Cooper in his oral history given to the University of Georgia, Senator Russell's, you know, uh, in, in Senator Russell's archives, but backing up what Senator Russell had said, because now we have other information from Senator Russell. Yeah, and what I don't want to forget to say is when you're an historian, you're always looking to confirm different accounts of things. George knows that. He, 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 as a historian, you want to find those things. Well, what does all of this do for me? It confirms what, what, uh, uh, what uh, Morris Wolf told me, doesn't it? It shows that the disturbing effect of what was going on at the commission with, uh, with, uh, with the uh, uh, Oswald alone uh, focus for everything. And you're probably wondering, well, why didn't uh, Cooper and Russell talk about this in public? Well, again, they had the code of silence, okay? And he finally was sharing the things with, uh, with, with Morris Wolf, but it took Morris Wolf 60 years to tell somebody, and he told me. So what happened then is that uh, I wanted to look further into this, and so I went to look and see what happened, when sen what Senator Russell knew about the fact that the dissent wasn't in there. Now think about this. This is very, very important. For 60 years, the Oswald alone verdict has lived because the Warren Commission said so. Just think about if the dissent, the minority report that questioned the Oswald alone verdict, the silver bullet theory, all of that would have been in that final report. Here's what could happen, and here's why J. Edgar Hoover couldn't let it be in the final report, and it wasn't. They said it would be. Earl Warren, LBJ, Hoover promised it was never in that final report. And, and you see, the, 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 what, 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 it's just, if you think about it, it's common sense because what would have happened if that uh, dissent would have been in there? It would have changed everything, okay? There would have been more investigation. Maybe Congress would have investigated. Maybe the state of Texas would have investigated. And as I said to somebody the other day who's, who's a big advocate of, let's say, the, he said of the CIA being involved, I said, well, you never had a chance for that to be proven by the Warren Commission because they weren't going to investigate it. They weren't going to investigate the mafia. They weren't going to invest the Russians, the Cubans, anybody else. And, and he said, I never thought of that. And I said, well, neither did I. But that's what, that's what the effect of this was, okay? So I, I decided to look more into Senator Richard Russell because he was, he was such a big part of this. So after the final commission report was delivered to the president, I found this in the archives. The commission was disbanded, and the members had little reason to review the final draft. Had Russell done this, he would have noticed immediately it contained no mention of any dissent. The senator resumed his congressional duties, assuming that his opinion had been documented and taken into account. Now, three years go by before a Senate investigator, Harold Weisberg, attempts to gain access to all of the Warren Commission transcripts. In a letter dated eight, uh, eight, uh, May 20th, 1968, to the Archivist for the United States, the informed Weisberg had no, found that there was no verbatim transcript of the September 18th meeting even existing. That was the archivist who told uh, Weisberg, who was the investigator, right. that there is no transcript so of there, that. There's no transcript of it. Yeah. 
There was a document indicating the structural account of general business being conducted, but nowhere in it was there any mention of Russell's defense, dissent. Russell's attempt to document his doubts for history had been foiled. And then, these, this is so interesting how these things happen. <laughs> During a chance meeting with Russell in June 68, now we're four years past the September uh, 1964 release of the final report, Weisberg told the Senator that a draft of the Warren Commission report with the dissented it uh, no longer existed. That the official transcript record of Russell's doubts, as well as those of Cooper and Boggs, had been expunged from the historical record, men, meaning no mention of Russell's expect, ex, ex, uh, exceptions to the final draft of the report. They basically destroyed the document. And then this is how they tricked him. Early in the life of the commission, the members decided the executive secessions would be recorded by Ward and Paul, an established firm. During the September 18th meeting, Russell recalled the presence of a woman in the room and assumed she was the official stenographer. However, she was not, since a survey of the uh, Ward and Paul records showed the last station the firm was billed for was a September 15th deposition. It is thus possible to assume that a presence of a stenographer was meant to deceive Russell and other dissenters into assuming that the meeting was being transcribed as usual. They went to that extent to trick them. They thought it was being recorded, and it wasn't. The presence of the doctored transcripts proved that someone, most likely Warren Commission General Counsel Lee Rankin, assured that there would be no record of dissensions in the ranks. When confronted with this unmistakable proof of a hoax, Russell was shocked and appalled. Having served in Washington for decades, he could never imagine such treatment. Russell returned to Georgia in 1970 to film his farewell address to his constituents. Okay. He, uh, farewell. He knew, it's good. he knew he was dying of lung cancer. Seizing the final opportunity to make his position known, he stated quite plainly that he was not satisfied with several aspects of the report. He told the interviewer he refused to sign the report until they added the conclusion, the, uh, the clause of dissent. But he was never completely satisfied in his own mind that Oswald did plan an, an, the, this act together on his own without consultation with anyone else. And that's what a majority of the, of the commission wanted to find. And then, and then we go to this, you know. Uh, the evidence was evaluated by a second body five years after his death, and the commission was founded wanting. Well, the House Select Committee on Assassination Conclusions in 76 were shocking. The uh, commission had done its job too well. And so what happened is, although there have been doubters and critics, uh, as foreseen by FBI director during the commission appearance, most were dismissed as paranoid lunatics and conspiracy theorists. While the descent of such a prominent figure as Richard Russell could have lent certain legitimacy to various critics, the majority had been too effective in guiding public opinion. The wide variety of books and films proposed a host of conspiracies and other theories that had numbed an increasing jaded public to find new findings. So they closed it up and buried it, and I missed it, and everyone who has talked about the assassination, written about it, the so-called experts and everything, they never found this. First time it's been exposed is right now. Now, Mark, we, we talked about what we wanted to do tonight in this particular um, hour yes. that we have. And uh, we're not going to try to answer the questions of what really did happen. What we're trying to show with your research is that, that there were two very, very uh, well-respected senators who dissented from the Warren Commission's report, and therefore there must be some other answer, or probably some other answer, and we don't even know if that's true or not, but it, it seems like it. And then the next part, I think, of what we want to talk about is where did Dorothy Kilgallen take this? So you heard the information that Senator John Cooper gave her transcripts that he wasn't supposed to share with anybody because he thought that she would follow up on that as a reporter. So we're now in Dorothy Kilgallen territory mm -hmm. um, as a reporter. And where did she take 
this investigation, where did she think and how did she fit into it? We've talked about it before, but I think it's an important part of this whole picture. Not to come to an answer, but to say, well, where did this one reporter who was trusted with the, by the dissenters try to take this information? So the Warren Commission report is issued, and it's, it's I mean, it's as bogus as, as can be. Here's, here's their report, okay? It's worthless. Oh, sorry, George. <laughs> it's, it worth, it's, absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely worthless. I'm sorry, George. I mean, <laughs> but it's worthless. There's only one piece of humor in this whole event, so that was it. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. But no, no. <laughs> I, I, just, I get very I get upset about this. I get very frustrated about this. Three people died here that should never have died. One was Marilyn Monroe. Bobby Kennedy was complicit in her death. If he would have been prosecuted with all the evidence, there would have never even been a JFK assassination. And, and Dorothy Kilgallen wouldn't have investigated, and she wouldn't have died. So I get very passionate about this. Uh, what happened? After the Warren Commission report came out, okay, everybody bought it. All the media bought it. CBS did a three-part series that's on YouTube. They called out uh, Cronkite, Dan Rather, Morley Safer. They did all these experiments. They did everything. Oh, the, Oswald, uh, the commission got it right. The, uh, the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations was convened in 76. Uh, nothing, nothing in there uh, really disturbing about the Warren Commission. Uh, but, you know, again, they didn't have all the evidence. And then the church report, Frank Church, a, a senator, had a report that they did. And it, it talked about the Warren Commission. None of the dissent stuff is in any of that, okay? And guess who else isn't in any of those uh, documents? Dorothy Kilgallen. Never invited to uh, appear before the commission, even though, as, as you'll see in a minute, she was the lone wolf who was out there crying, no Oswald alone, no Oswald alone. It's something more. She was not at the um, House Select Committee on Assassinations, and she was not in the church report. So all of that information never got out to the public with regard to what these things are that we found here just recently. But there was Dorothy Kilgallen in Dallas. You have to know that she was a very good friend of JFK's. He came to her home for parties. He played charades with her when he was a senator. Uh, she was a very close friend of his. At one point, he invited her to the White House with his little son, Carrie, and made a fuss over some papers, that, uh, some letters that uh, Carrie brought from the school. She, she, Dorothy's son, Carrie. Dorothy's son, Carrie. Yeah. And, and so there was a very close relationship there. And so when she watched him being assassinated and then Ruby shot Oswald, and as I've proved in my books, uh, Oswald's testimony before the Warren Commission uh, was bogus, uh, but she found out that he, uh, you know, would be there when Oswald was going to be transferred, all of that. So Dorothy knew all of that. And what did she do? She went to Dallas. She interviewed Jess Curry the Dallas police chief, who said the first shots came from the overpass, not from the book depository. She, uh, she was in Dealey Plaza. She was doing all of that to investigate. She was at the Ruby trial. I always say to these uh, skeptics of mine, hey, were you in Dallas? Were you there? No, of course they weren't. I wasn't there. Dorothy was there. We have the photograph. She was there with Melvin Belli, the, the, the uh, uh, the uh, video of that is on the website, the DorothyKilgallenStory.org. A lot of things are up there if you want to take a look. Uh, she went to the Ruby trial, front row. She heard all the testimony. She interviewed Jack Ruby, the only one to do so at the trial out of 400 reporters. Now, how did she get that? She one day, one, not, not, well, not, not easy to do. So. No, it, it, in, in, in the books and especially in, in Fighting for Justice, but uh, collateral damage to, and the reporter who knew too much. Basically, what was there? She was there. Uh, Jack Ruby uh, told uh, his co-counsel uh, Joe Tonahill that uh, at the Carousel Club they watched What's My Line every Sunday night, as millions of people did, and that he had respect for, her, and that somehow they had a mutual friend who was an opera singer in San Francisco. So during one lunch hour, Tonahill said, "Jack wants to talk to you," mm -hmm. and she talked to him for about eight minutes, and then there was another little quick session there too. And so whatever he told her, as, as we'll talk about, we don't know exactly, and I'll mention why. But she was on the job, 
and the first time within days of the assassination. Her column, the Oswald file must not close. Justice is a big rug when, you, when it unfolds, a lot of other people fall out. Um, she, she reported on uh, Ruby's friendships with the Dallas police. She, report, she was the only one going against the grain of this Oswald alone uh, situation, putting herself in danger, obviously, from J. Edgar Hoover, LBJ, all these people who wanted to close the door on everything going on. So none of that information was ever in the newspapers other than what Dorothy wrote. Uh, it wasn't in the Warren Commission report. It wasn't in the, the other uh, investigations or anything. But what Dorothy found was basically this, that you have to look at, as, at motive. As a former criminal defense lawyer who handled mostly murder cases, I always looked at motive. When I did my network analysis of uh, legal analysis of O.J. And, and Mike Tyson and, and Kobe Bryant's case, I always look at motive. And that's what Dorothy did. She was very clever. She investigated the Dr. Sam Shepard case, which became the fugitive, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. She, she was uh, called by the New York Post the most powerful female voice in America, syndicated to 200 newspapers across the country. A million people listened to the radio program. She was a woman of action and a woman trusted uh, by her colleagues and with the best sources. So what did she do after she went ahead and interviewed Ruby. Now, George is right. For instance, let's, let's just go back a minute. We really don't know uh, about the CIA because the Warren Commission never investigated. We really don't know a great deal about the Cubans who could have uh, obviously, uh, you know, come back against JFK for the, for the, uh, the problem with the, uh, with the assault on the invasion of Cuba, okay? With all, the, 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 all those people being killed there, all the soldiers. We don't know about LBJ being investigated because of his, his uh, connections to um, the, the oil industry and other skeletons in his closet because they never investigated him. We don't know about the Kennedys because uh, Katzenbach uh, said, no, 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 we're not going to get into them fixing the 60 election or anything like that. We don't know about any of that. All we know is that Dorothy Kilgallen, the first place she went after she talked to Ruby, was New Orleans. And that's where Carlos Marcello, the Mafia Don, was, whom Bobby Kennedy had deported within a few weeks of JFK's death, uh, excuse me, of, of, of um, uh, deported a few, uh, few days or weeks after JFK was inaugurated. Double, it was a double cross because Joe Kennedy had promised those mafioso they would leave them alone if they helped them win the election. Instead, uh, Marcella was deported by Bobby Kennedy. So as 1963 comes along, here's what Dorothy thought. Listen, uh, motive, uh, let's see. Who has the greatest motive to, uh, to kill JFK? Well, uh, I'd like to go ahead and kill Robert Kennedy so he won't cause me any trouble. But I'm going to go ahead, I think, and I'll kill JFK, have him killed, so Bobby Kennedy will be powerless and never come after me. And that's exactly what happened. He never did. So Dorothy, in her own mind, as we get to the fall of 1965, what does she know? She knows about Ruby's, uh, uh, you know, obviously being involved in the, in the, and uh, in, in, in having shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and she doesn't believe from what he told her or whatever that it was his idea he was ordered to do so. She knows about the corruption at the Warren Commission. She knows about the Warren Commission uh, Ruby testimony, that it doesn't fit with his testimony at trial. She knows about all of these kinds of things that were going on, and she's put herself in danger, hasn't she? And as November comes along, she visits uh, uh, New Orleans, and she confirms that she can connect Oswald, Marcello, and, um, and Ruby. And she comes back, and she's a blabbermouth. And she tells everybody, I'm going to break the case wide open. Uh, I'm, uh, if the wrong people knew what I know about the assassination would cost me my life, I bought a gun. I'm afraid for my life and my family. And on November 8, 1965, she's found in a bedroom she never slept in, in her townhouse in Manhattan, uh, wearing her eyelashes, makeup, and her hairpiece, and, uh, and she's dead. No investigation whatsoever. The cause of death, supposedly an overdose of drugs, circumstances undetermined. No investigation. No investigation of Marilyn's death. No investigation of JFK's death. 
None of them got the, ju the justice they deserved. But we're talking about tonight uh, the whole situation with JFK. He deserved better, didn't he? He deserved, he and his family deserved better to know what really happened when he was killed in Dallas in 1963. And that did not happen. And it's unfortunate uh, because so much of this was covered up by the government. You know, if we learn anything from this, the relevance of it, it's to ask questions. Don't take all that bull on the internet for what it, what it says. Don't, some of these extreme uh, news outlets, uh, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Ask questions. You know, young people, I tell them all the time, ask questions because they didn't have, ask enough questions back then. They bought that whole Warren Commission uh, verdict, just hook, line, and sinker. And it, it, was, it was evident that there could have been other problems there, you know, but it was all covered up, which is just extremely uh, disappointing and frustrating. And it seems, you know, all these years later, um, they still have information that they're not releasing mm -hmm. and, and saying, well, we have to delay this a little bit longer because it may affect the lives of people who are still alive. But, you know, it's been 60 years. What, well, at it, what point, at what right, point do you think right. the government should just give all the information out that they have? Well, it's it's uh, it's disturbing, and and I think this is why people have so much uh, of a problem with with government today, uh, the hiding of of government, the the fake news, all the things coming out. We don't have a reporter. Like, how many emails from around the world have I gotten saying I wish we had a reporter with integrity like Dorothy Kilgallen today? There's not one out there. Uh, I just chastised a reporter for USA Today who wrote an article. Uh, that I, I felt like he, he really didn't do any investigation whatsoever, and I was in one of those moods of mine. And so I wrote, and so I wrote him back, and I said, Jeff, you're no Dorothy Kilgallen. <laughs> because they don't investigate anymore. They look for the sensational headline, and then they come up with facts that might fit with that. Dorothy didn't do that. She went out and found the facts, and then used the headlines or whatever that way. That's why she was so, so respected. Yeah, just for those of you who are uh, on the online audience, we're showing a series of pictures here, which are from John Kennedy's life, from Dorothy Kilgallen's life, from Marilyn's life, just just to give you images of of what they were like. So yeah, and and just one more thing, very very critical of the media uh, back then. Uh, Dorothy had the story; she was right there; she was well respected. But I can't find any accounts of uh, any, of any of her of her, uh, you know, of her columns or anything else like that. We, we've uh, looked very carefully at that. They were just in the New York Journal American. Because here's what happens, and I'll tell you what, all of the books written since the JFK assassination, in not any of them will you find the name Dorothy Kilgallen. What they do is they, they leave her out, and they leave me out, frankly, because we go against the grain. If, if you put in my research, especially Dorothy's, though, research and everything, it goes completely counter of Oswald alone. Gerald Posner, uh, uh, Vincent Bugliosi, uh, uh, all, these, all these, uh, these, uh, these authors and everything. I even talked to Vincent Bugliosi, the Manson, former Manson prosecutor, about Dorothy Kilgallen before he wrote his book, Reclaiming History. And I told him about Dorothy's research. And I knew him. And he said, Mark, oh my God, this makes such a difference. I'm going to include that in my book. You think it was in there? No. Unfortunately, what you can do is you can just leave out those kind of things. And, and just another quick so it's, thing. So it's like a, like a descent to the Warren Commission. Absolutely. Sure <laughs> is. That's true. You can just leave it out. That's true. And some of my supporters tell me, for instance, okay, there's a big JFK uh, conference in Pittsburgh uh, in, in, this month. And there's one in Dallas. And I assume you know about the one in Memphis. You're going to be there, aren't you? Uh, aren't you going to speak there? They don't invite me. Now, there could be a lot of reasons why they don't, but they don't want to hear about me, and they don't want to hear about Dorothy Kilgallen because it upsets everything they're trying to do because they're still, they're still biting all the Oswald alone stuff and then crazy cons conspiracy theories and everything else like that. Recently, I got one that uh, I think was about as crazy as it could be. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you tonight. Jackie Kennedy shot uh, JFK. And she did on the, on the White House lawn uh, with a gun given to her by the Secret Service. 
And then uh, after she shot him, she threw the gun in the bushes and they came uh, and, and picked up the body of JFK. And there's been a lookalike, there was a lookalike after that, uh, that that has combed the earth. That's how strange it gets. Now, George, you don't believe that, do you? I, I know. I, it reminds me of, of something that I concluded long ago. There is no myth so irrational that no one will believe it. <laughs> That's probably true. And there is no truth so obvious that everyone will accept it. That but, just seems to be yeah, the right. way that's humanity right. goes, you know. But back to being serious. Just look at those two little kids, John, John, and Caroline, okay? And uh, there's a great book out there written by Caroline about her father. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stories of them together. There's a the photograph that was sent to me recently, almost brought a tear to my eye. JFK is coming out of the White House, and he's carrying John, John's little uh, t uh, teddy bear. I mean, he loved those children. You remember the shot of JF, uh, of, of, uh, of John John under the uh, president's desk? Mm. I mean, he lost all of that at his early age, and Jackie lost all of it and everything. But it's just, it's just sad to think about that because it should have never happened. Morris Wolf told me, by the way, that uh, they knew that, uh, that uh, Jack Kennedy was in trouble if he went to Dallas. And they argued as much as they could to have a limousine with the top on it. And then he told me that his brother, uh, who'd lived in Dallas for 40 years, told him, Don't, he cannot come here. Somebody is going to kill him. And obviously that's what happened. So the warnings were out there. And unfortunately, nobody listened mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about a little bit more about John Kennedy, it being the 60th anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, you, as I said at the beginning, you've written about the difficulties in the Kennedy family and, you know, the, the, the bad habits that they had and stuff like that. Um, but why don't you tell, you, you mentioned briefly about the brothers during the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. and how they relied on each other. And um, although there's evidence that the book that Bobby wrote is not an accurate representation of what happened, but the general arc of it uh, is that the two uh, Kennedys, knowing history, did not want to allow this to go into a nuclear situation. Mm -hmm. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I think yeah. maybe them at their best in, in uh, foreign policy. Well, the, uh, the shining moments for them are two. One is civil rights, for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Morris Wolf told me about that, that Bobby Kennedy was, uh, he was going to change the world. He was not going to allow, uh, what was happening was that a lot of the, the uh, African-Americans, the black people were crossing states and then they would come into a state and get arrested. They couldn't stay at Howard Johnson. They couldn't stay at hotels. They couldn't eat in restaurants, all of this. And he was fiercely determined. And one time he, he uh, mentioned to me that Bobby Kennedy was pounding his fist on the desk of, of the arrests of these people, and they've been squirted with water, as you know, and the dogs and the horses and all of that, and how strong he believed in they had to do something. And Morris was right in the middle of that. And there would have never been a Civil Rights Act of 1964 if it hadn't been for, for Bobby Kennedy. So I, I'm, I'm a big, uh, I, I've been an opponent of his in a lot of ways, in terms of especially his relationship with Marilyn Monroe, but that is, a, uh, that is a badge of honor for him, for sure. And JFK backed him up on that. There was no rivalry about that. There was no jealousy there at all. And, and uh, they were determined that they were going to do something about civil rights, and that way they succeeded. And then their finest moment came about, I believe, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you have to remember what was going on there. Uh, I read a, an interesting biography. I'm writing a biography of Lincoln right now, which is, is very, very interesting. And I see a lot of traits in him that I saw in, in JFK. Uh, you know, uh, passion being the main one. Passion. If they believed in something, you know, they were going to follow through on it for sure. But I read a, a biography of, of, of Cuba, basically, what it was. And it talks about Cuba and, and goes all the way back to the... It's very disturbing, of course, with the whole slave situation and the United States and a lot of businessmen here making millions and millions of dollars about it. But Cuba finally got to a point where it was, it was independent and it, was, it seemed to be doing well and so on and so forth that way. 
And then, of course, uh, Fidel Castro came in, and then they got involved with the Russians, and uh, what was going to happen? They, they, felt, uh, they felt isolated. They felt like the U.S. was going to take over and all of that, and so they made an agreement with the Russians and all that, and we found out, or the, we, I didn't, they found out in, in government that they had, had uh, missiles over there that could reach uh, American cities. So Morris, you know, talks a little bit about that, but uh, the, the whole situation was that some, some action had to be taken. And there were those hawks who believed and really, really uh, tried to, uh, uh, to, to convince John F. Kennedy uh, that the best thing to do was to invade Cuba, go in there and get them out, all right? And he listened and he listened, and then he and Bobby, and Bobby then, uh, it was his finest hour because he used a back channel to uh, uh, one of the, uh, the, the uh, officials in Cuba and ba basically said and made it clear that they were going to stop those ships from going to Cuba. And, uh, and there, was no, uh, you know, there was no flexibility in that. And so John F. Kennedy and, and Robert Kennedy put our country at risk by stopping those ships because what could have happened, obviously, because Khrushchev was yelling and screaming about, you can't do that and we're going to invade the United States, but they went ahead and did that and saved us, in my opinion, and, and I think it's right to say so, from a nuclear war right then. So you have to think about that. Well, Bobby Kennedy then was killed in 68, just five years after his brother. He had a lot of flaws, but he shouldn't have been killed for sure. Some people ask, there is a connection between that death and, and JFK's, and I've said many times that I think there is. I think that uh, Marcello in... in, uh, in uh, New Orleans said to himself, wait a minute, uh, Bobby Kennedy knows, and by the way, RFK's waltzing around the country talking about the fact that his father told him that the CIA was involved in JFK's death, which is not true. Um, J uh, Bobby Kennedy told all of his advisors and, and, uh, and government officials and everything that was the guy from New Orleans, and, and uh, I thought they would get somebody, uh, get one of us, but not me, and all of that. He's just making up history doing that. But Marcello would have thought, using common sense, listen, uh, Bobby Kennedy knows that I killed his brother. He's going to become president of the United States. What's the first thing he's going to do? Come after me. So I have been able to make some connections between um, Sirhan Sirhan and Marcello, but I've never been able to make enough connections there that I've put that in a book uh, so far. Maybe... Maybe somebody will watch this presentation and come back to me with that connection, but I don't speculate. <laughs> but I don't speculate. But it's just sad. It's just sad with the two, the two Kennedys dying like they did. Yeah, one, one last comment about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, they were also realists. They, the deal that they made for allowing Khrushchev some uh, face back in Russia was that they would remove missiles from Turkey which we had already put oh, in place there. Yeah. And they, you know, and so that was part of the backroom uh, deal, which, of course, they're not going to say out loud. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that was effective for, for getting a conclusion. So um, it, it's time to bring this to an end. Um, but I thought we'd give the last word to our online audience uh, that's watching the live stream. Uh, there's two comments. Uh, one is from a Mr. Allen. He said that Dorothy Kilgallen is a heroine. Um, and there's another comment from a man named V. Kayser, and he suggested that the Warren Report would make an excellent doorstop. And don't throw it on somebody's foot. Yeah. <laughs> book. I'm sorry, George. No problem. Sorry. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Can we, do, can we have a question from the audience, or do we have time? Anybody? Uh, one question from the audience who would like to ask a question. Uh, let's... I'll stand right next to you so you can talk into my microphone. Okay. Well, I was wondering if you were going to comment about the recent report by a Secret Service man who uh, found says he found a bullet in the backseat of the car. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have a comment about that? Well, I respect this man for sure. He was a Secret Service agent. He was there. Okay. So we know that. But I've got to tell you, I've, I've looked at his account 60 years. 60 years go by. And what bothered me f more than anything is that the author of the book, where his account, you know, his account is in there, basically said that he helped this man reconstruct everything that happened. And I'm, I'm just dubious of whether you get an independent account from him then from this Mr. Landis. Uh, also, uh, it sounds a little bit dubious to me 
uh, with regard to that bullet being there and why he wouldn't have right away reported what he saw. Uh, now, he can say that he would have been scared to do so, and maybe he has, uh, but I, I'm, I'm a little bit dubious of that kind of an account because it sounds like that the author who wanted this book to be published may have influenced him with regard to what he said. And I've seen some other uh, people who agree with that uh, estimation, but it does tell you that for whatever reason, I guess he's saying that this whole silver bullet theory uh, it, it, it isn't, uh, you know, isn't valid. So that goes along with some of what Russell and Cooper said. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of what happened, and I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to criticize him in public. I've been asked to do so, but I'm not going to do that. So I think the, the bottom line here, after all these years of, of working on it, is uh, that we have some information that we know is accurate. We know that they should have at least taken this dissent very seriously mm-hmm. um, and, and looked into it, which they didn't for whatever reasons, you know, they didn't. Um, and that there's this reporter, Dorothy Kilgallen, who was after the information had a, a, a relatively reasonable uh, construct of what probably happened, um, but was killed before she could bring it out. Well, and, and that's the proof. Yeah. Dorothy had it right because what? They killed her. No. Yeah. They silenced her. And end of story. I mean, that's, that's ba- basically, if you think about it, you know, they could not let her write that book for Random House. She was writing about a tell-all book mm-hmm. because Hoover would have been indicted for covering up the assassination. And in my opinion, although George is right, we can't for sure uh, know this, but Marcello would have been indicted for orchestrating the death of JFK. That, couldn't, that book couldn't come out, could it? No, but we can talk about it now 60 years later, finally. Yes, we can. And, and, and anybody who has any other information in your family, contact Mark. You know, so other families have had information being passed down, um, and uh, he'll sift through it. So thank you, because I don't think we're done yet. <laughs> After seven years and six, six uh, well, anyway. Six. So thank you very, very much for joining us again. Uh, and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club, and it's 121st year of Enlightened Discussion. Thank you very much for coming, and I hope you've gotten some more information out of that if you watch this online or on YouTube. Thanks again. Thank you, George. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.